Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a, a really amazing, you know, founder. I mean, I, I got to tell you that uh, I was getting dizzy from, you know, taking a look at all the different companies that he's done, all the exits, you know, many, many, many good positive outcomes. Uh, and there's going to be like really a lot of uh, interesting topics, you know, that we're going to be covering today around, you know, building, scaling, financing. And also exiting, you know, how to think about timing when it comes to exiting too. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Amar Sauni. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Good to meet you. Originally born in India, Amar. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Uh, it was uh, quite nice, meaning my father was in the Indian Air Force, so we got to move every two years. So we lived in various parts of the country. I got exposure to the eastern part of the country in Shillong, uh, where we had uh, a wonderful house in the hills, a, a pretty large British mansion type of a place. And then we moved to uh, the central part of uh, India, different state, different languages. And then we moved to the western side of India, where we ended up settling down. He took retirement and uh, I finished my high school out in Gandhinagar, which is the capital of Gujarat uh, now. And I finished my high school over there. So after I did that, then we uh, I went to study engineering, chemical engineering specifically, at uh, the Indian Institute of Technology in Delhi. Uh, so uh, 87, 83 to 87, I was there. Um, it was a great time. Um, we had all kinds of, it was one of the best uh, engineering schools in the country. So a lot of good exposure and uh, a great platform to kind of launch your career. I finished that and then I had a few opportunities to kind of go do an MBA. I had admission to all the MBA schools, uh, good MBA schools in India, and I had a job, which is a really good job. And then I had an admission and a scholarship to the University of Texas at Austin in the United States. So figuring that I could always do those other two things uh, uh, some point in the future, I thought I would go explore the U.S. So in uh, 1987, I came to the U.S. to do my master's uh, work. Now, 
you did your master's work, you know, I'm sure that coming here to the U.S., you know, seeing the culture and the innovation happening, I'm sure that that was exciting for you. But it sounds like the visa stuff, you know, the paperwork was a little painful to be able to really get clear on what that career path would be. So how would you say, because as they say in life, you know, one door closes and another one opens. How was that transition, you know, from getting a door closed to getting another one open for you? Yeah, so the ecosystem was at that time in 1989 when I finished my master's not as well developed, especially in the field of materials and engineer and chemical engineering type of a thing. So tech was also just get taking off. People didn't really have a concept, especially companies like Exxon, Chevron, Dow Chemical. These were the big recruiting firms that came on. They didn't have any concept of hiring. people who did not have authorization to work in the United States. So when I applied to almost 30 different jobs, and I was you know, used to getting everything that I applied for, meaning I thought I was uh, God's gift to mankind back in India. So it was very disillusioning to find you know people would not even give you an interview because you, they, you didn't check the right box uh, of having the work authorization. So quite demotivating. And then I considered kind of going back to India where I might have, obviously, people valued me more highly. But I'm not one to sort of retreat. Uh, so in that process, I sought the advice of my advisor, uh, who I was doing research for, Dr. Jeffrey Hubble. And he said, look, uh, I have some interesting research projects. If you would consider doing a PhD, then maybe you do that. So I took his advice and continued on. And that was actually one of the best uh, you know, forks in the road that one could take because He, while being young, was very promising in his career, and uh, we came up with some really cool, interesting technology where we could do chemical reactions uh, on living tissue without even harming the first cell uh, using light-based polymerizations uh, right now, which are being used for 3D printing, etc. We were doing this 35 years ago, and we came up with this really cool technology, and that became the basis for a couple of companies and venture capital groups approached us. They wanted to license that technology. And that gave me my first break and my first job. And I moved to the Boston area. So that was quite the ride because that uh, that was Focal. And basically there with Focal, you guys ended up taking the company public. And you were 27 years old doing the whole roadshow, you know, for the IPO. So how was that for you too? I'm sure that, that was pretty wild. No, that was a heady experience, you know, riding limos on Wall Street and uh, going to Europe. And we went to UK, Italy, different countries and stuff like that. And, you know, as a kid, uh, because I was the guy who really understood the technology, I got to go everywhere and uh, meet all these investors. I was in Sears Towers. I was in, you know, all these uh, really fancy Wall Street places and things. Uh, It was great exposure for somebody who uh, had you know, uh, really not encountered the financial world before. Uh, I was a technical guy. Uh, to be able to kind of get this exposure uh, was uh, amazing. Absolutely. You know, who gets that opportunity? So obviously for you there, you know, one thing, you know, led to the next. And uh, obviously you guys took the, to- the company public. But at one point you start to reflect on what could be next for you. Because, I mean, reaching those heights, you know, at 27, you know, 27, you're full of energy, you know, full of vision, full of everything. So what was that thinking? You know, that thought process that got you to think that maybe there was another chapter that you could explore? 
Yeah, so there was an area that we had initially worked on at Focal, uh, which uh, uh, that trial was not successful, and uh, the company had moved on to developing a sealant for lung surgery. Uh, but that uh, initial application for gynecological surgery was something that I f felt I could still solve. Uh, but my equity position at that point in time at Focal was very, very small, like a decimal place. Uh, and I, it's not all about equity because I thought Focal taught me a lot. I got a great opportunity. I discharged my duty by taking, getting the products, the first products through the FDA approval, through European approval, helping with the roadshow, taking the company public, etc. But then after a while, I said, look, I do want to do more things, but given my small equity position over here, this is probably not the right platform. I tried to get them to license some of the technology they wouldn't work on, which was my technology, but I couldn't get it out from them. So this gave me, got me frustrated. Uh, I felt that this was not a right thing. This technology would not be worked on in the future, and they still don't want to give it to me. I wanted to give them 20% of my new company to, in exchange for that, which I thought was a pretty fair deal. But then uh, you, 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 I started turning negative when they weren't responding. And I thought, I'm not a negative person. It is not in me to every day come into work feeling unhappy. I said, if I feel confident in my abilities, then I should just go do it. So I told them that I'm going to leave and I'm going to go do something else. And if they don't mind, uh, please let me go. So they said, okay, well, just don't uh, compete with us for some time and you can go. And I sat down, went back to my basement, came up with new technology, new patents were filed. Um, I had a little bit of money saved away from the IPO from Focal, so I used some of that capital, went to friends and family, begging for $10,000 at a time type of a thing. And uh, we put the capital together and uh, started our first, uh, first company called uh, uh, Confluent Surgical. And this time I took this intellectual property and instead of putting it all into one operating company, we put it into a holding company called Incept which I founded with my partner, Fred Kushravi, who's on the West Coast. And we, the two of us, kind of contributed our intellectual property and put it in this holding company, and then field-specifically licensed it to Confluent as the first operating company in brain and spine surgery. And there we created sealants for brain and spine surgery. And one thing here that is very interesting that typically is not what our listeners are used to, you know, rather than just like going all out, you know, into one single company, in this case, like you were saying, you had the IP and the technology and everything on Incept, and basically you were like spanning out that technology or licensing that technology to other companies that you've been rolling out. So how is that thought process of structuring things like that and why it was important, you know, as part of your guys' journey? So that is important and particularly important uh, for companies uh, and technologies that take a while before they can start generating revenue. So unlike a service company, so if you have a service company that can generate revenue from day one, right? You can get a contract, you can generate revenue, but a medical device product that needs FDA approval takes five to six years before it can get FDA approval. So in that period of time, you are essentially financing the company by selling equity and diluting yourself down. If you try to run the budget of three different projects in one company's uh, uh, equity, then you find that you will dilute yourself down a lot more. And consequently, uh, what you might, might be trying to achieve is not being achieved. You're making progress, maybe, 
but you're also diluting yourself down quite a bit. So based on that, it is better to leave the intellectual property in the holding company, execute upon one, learn a lot about that process, have experienced employees, and then do the next one with a greater degree of efficiency with new capital available. That means you're deferring some of your exits a little bit out, but you're not diluting yourself as much and you have more capital to play with and you can apply the learnings and lessons that you got from the first one to the second one, et cetera. And over time, you end up building up an ecosystem of employees, an ecosystem of investors, deal makers, lawyers, accountants, et cetera, that help you build this company. Uh, and we can continue to use that from company to company going forward. Now, in this case, you know, like you were saying, you know, you, you continue to use this from company to company moving forward, you know, and the first stop, you know, in that was Confluent. I mean, Confluent, first company, first exit, you know, not bad, you know, $250 million exit. So I'm sure that that was remarkable. You know, how did the exit come about? And I'm sure that it was nerve wracking for you being the first M&A. Yeah, no, I think in that uh, process, uh, we created sealants to seal, seal the brain and spine after brain and spine surgery, and we started commercializing the product. Uh, so we were commercializing the product. The product was doing well. It was the first product of its kind, and we were getting good revenue traction, and we, were, we became profitable. So what happened is that at this point in time, this whole area of biosurgery which means sealants and things to stop bleeding and stopping scar formation was becoming a popular area. And there were companies like Johnson & Johnson that had acquired some companies in this area. And Covidian, which is an intense competitor uh, of uh, Johnson & Johnson, uh, was looking for a company that had products in this area. So they, as they were looking, they approached us, as did other companies that were in this space. So we had three or four companies approaching us, we retained bankers to be able to optimize the deal and the bankers were able to kind of take what was an initial offer of $130 million to a $250 million uh, exit. And everybody did well, the investors did well, the employees did well, so it was a good exit. So what about dealing with bankers? You know, how, for the people that are listening that are perhaps, you know, thinking about the exit or that are receiving some inbound interest, what did you learn about dynamics with bankers and how to make sure that they, everyone is rowing in the same direction to make it happen like you, like you guys did? So, yeah, so I think uh, what I tend to do, so one thing to understand is that companies are best uh, bought rather than sold. So when you try to go and sell a company, I don't think you have the right leverage in the upper hand. So you have to wait. Uh, it's like going fishing. You know, you put the bait in, you wait until there's a few fish biting. Uh, you don't start uh, trying to sort of, you know, spear the fish uh, from the shore kind of a, a situation. So I think when you have those types of bites and then because the bankers are not necessarily going to bring a lot of new companies uh, who, uh, who, are, who don't know you because they can't meet the particular timetable. Uh, of the deal. So you wait until there's a few of them that have gotten to know you and, and, and have been following you, you've been in communication with them. And then at the right time, you bring in a banker. And the bankers that we tend to use, we want to find people who are specialists in medical devices. Uh, the buyers trust them, uh, and they have a good trusted relationship so that they take them seriously. Uh, so uh, we've used uh, specialist banks like you know, Piper Jaffray, J.P. Morgan uh, in for some of our deals. 
When we take a company public, uh, there's a different question. It's a question of the analysts that might be there and, uh, and the market support that they can provide. So we've used, uh, in that case, uh, you know, we used Morgan Stanley and uh, RBC and, and things of that nature. Today, for some of the work that we do, we have uh, good relationships with, uh, again, uh, Piper Sandler, we have good relationship with Guggenheim, and we have good relationships with some more specialized banks like uh, uh, transactional banks like Centerview, uh, where the people who left JP Morgan have now gone. So it is oftentimes about the particular banker that you're going to use who has a certain uh, expertise and relationship. And then you need to have, obviously, the ancillary things, the analysts who will do all the documentation and stuff, but that's tactical. The strategic stuff comes from you making sure that the, the deal is ripe enough that other people are uh, interested, uh, companies are interested, and you've got a banker who has credibility. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers, and that's again go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. So the next stop, actually, you know, in, in your journey, you know, talking about the dynamics and, you know, how to think through, you know, those types of process was ocular therapeutics. You guys raised hundreds of millions and then you took the company public and that was a billion plus valuation. So how was it that you guys have been able to achieve with that? So how was the journey with that? What were you guys doing and what was the biggest lesson that you took away from that experience? So at Ocular Therapeutics, we were developing basically drugs that would replace eye drops. So instead of having to take eye drops, you would either have one-time placements of inserts that would deliver the entire course of eye drops, or you would have injections that would replace maybe up to a, the entire year worth of other injections. So it was a drug delivery platform uh, that uh, we're, and it's still a public company. Uh, so there we developed the first drug, uh, which is for uh, delivering a steroid or anti-inflammatory after eye surgery. And it is placed into one of the tear ducts and delivers the entire course of drug and then disappears on its own. So eliminates having to take about 120 eye drops by the patient. So it really is helpful and convenient and compliance is improved, etc. So it's uh, it's it's going well. It's uh, you know uh, doing a decent amount in revenue, and uh, hundreds of thousands of patients are using the product. Uh, so happy about that. However, one thing that I realize is uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, going public because in the public markets you don't have investors necessarily. You have a lot of traders, and these traders are not as interested in what you're going to be doing long term, but they are interested if the stock runs up a little bit, they'll get out of the stock. If you, Then you will end up having people who are shorting your stock 
these types of things don't happen when you have private markets where people are investing for the longer term and are aligned in their values for you. So I found that this was quite disillusioning, and I particularly didn't know whether a certain hedge fund was in the stock, out of the stock, competitively picking my brain, or uh, is trying to short me. So not having that alignment, I felt that, and having to go make repeated trips to New York to kind of talk about uh, the company and, and its progress uh, was not uh, something that I enjoyed doing. I found that I would have better ways to spend my time than to be spending time with these people. Um, I, I didn't respect them. So I hired in a good CEO uh, from uh, who was running a European uh, pharma company. And uh, he's now running the company and doing a fabulous job. And uh, I still remain a shareholder. But my learnings over there was that, uh, you know, public companies require uh, a lot of uh, extra non what i perceive as non value added work and that proves to be a distraction and it kind of messes with your um, uh, quality of life so i'd rather enjoy the private sides of the markets and uh, that's kind of what uh, my choice has been up till now so the strategy now is either uh, to take the companies and hold them for a long period of time run them as private profitable companies or uh, find uh, at the appropriate time um, uh, and an exit, and uh, to be able to hand it off to somebody who can scale the company more and take it further. Yeah, because I mean, in your case, you know, you also developed Augmentix. You also did uh, access closure. You know, the, I, in this case, Augmentix, you sold it for six hundred million to Boston Scientifics, and then the other one, Access Closure, you sold it for three hundred and fifty million to Cardam Health. So I guess the, the question, you know, especially to, to what you are alluding now, when you're thinking about harvesting value, you know, when is the right time for, for an acquisition? No? And you were saying, hey, you know, maybe public, you know, side of things, I'm not so excited about it anymore. So now when thinking about selling your company before going public, how do you think about timing? So I think there's a few things to consider. One is what are your capital needs? If the company itself has become profitable, and then you're not constantly in a fundraising crunch. And so you have a longer horizon that you can, you're not under any urgency, any external stipulation. Otherwise, uh, you know, if you need additional capitals, then that's the reason to kind of think about going public if you can't find that capital easily in the private markets. Uh, but the companies that I have created, their margins are high, the products are sort of, you know, unmet needs, first time products. So typically, the market traction is good, and we are able to make them profitable in a reasonable period of time. So we control our destiny at that point in time. And we can take the time to see how the product is scaling. Then that has to be counterbalanced with the question of what else could I be doing with my time? And am I enjoying that as much? So not that I don't enjoy meeting with customers and stuff. But after meeting the 20th and the 25th customer, that's not my, you know, it, it's only giving me that much more excitement and that much more mental stimulation. Uh, if I didn't have any other ideas, didn't have any other things to do, that would be fine. But I have other things that I could be doing, other new things that I could be discovering. And there are large companies that can take that and scale that across Europe, scale that to Japan, scale that elsewhere. So then that becomes the right inflection point where we have enjoyed some of the run-up but these people can take it because then my value shifts from not only making 
you know, a good exit from a dollar value, but also how many patients this can touch. Now, this may not be a value shared by other people, but I view my success as not only in terms of monetary things, but also the therapies that we have created, how many patients is it touching every year? So today I'm happy to show that over a million patients are touched by my therapies every year. And I would like to grow that number to 10 million. Uh, so I think if I have to do that, I need the aid and help of these larger companies, and that's the time to exit. Uh, uh, but making sure that you're not left too much money on the table. Uh, the other thing that you have to look at is from the exit standpoint, if you harvest the last grain of value and you don't leave anything for the acquirer and the acquirer buys the company and has to either shelve it or have to realize that you know revenue is declining from there, your credibility suffers also. So one thing good that I feel about whatever we've done to date, that both the selling side, which is all the employees and investors have been very happy. And both the, on the other side, the buying side, the companies that have bought the asset are also very happy. So which means that is the right type of transactional balance. If you have only one side be very happy and the other side is not very happy, like any relationship, it's not a great place to be. And as you're thinking about relationships, you know, with those strategics, you know, with uh, perhaps those that, you know, may make an investment and maybe that investment, you know, matures into an acquisition, how should, how should people think, how should founders think about developing those strategic relationships? Yeah, so I think the strategic relationships are things that, um, you know, you go to trade shows, for example. Uh, you may meet with uh, some of the strategic partners uh, in those kinds of settings. You may have, in our case, uh, uh, clinicians or doctors that are on our scientific advisory board that are also on their scientific advisory board. So you have some common touch point. There may be employees that have come from uh, larger companies. Uh, there may be employees that have worked with you in the past that are now working for larger companies. So you have many exchange points where you can kind of open up a little bit of a conversation so you can introduce the company. I would not go to them with this from the standpoint that you're looking to sell the company or something. I would just go to them from the standpoint that we want to get to know you and uh, we want to let you know what we're doing. We're not looking for anything specific right now. If there is ever a chance that something specific comes up, we'll be in touch. But right now, I don't need anything from you. So it is more of a relationship without an explicit ask of any sort. And you cultivate that and you keep them posted at a particular time when you're doing exciting things. So your credibility is greater that way than to cry wolf all the time, saying there's a deal happening, there's a deal happening. If there isn't a deal happening, don't say that. When there is a deal happening, then they'll believe you. Otherwise, it's like the boy crying wolf. Now, in this case, you know, for you, one thing that is really impressive to me you know, is that, uh, I mean, not only your, your absolutely incredible journey as, a, as an entrepreneur, but right now you are the CEO of three companies. I mean, you are the, the CEO of, in this case, Instila, Rejoin, and then also Promant. Mm -hmm. Three hyper-growth companies. How do you go about time management with three companies at the same time? So, look, all of us get only 24 hours in a day. That is an asset that doesn't change for anybody, no matter who you are. So, clearly, I can't buy myself more time. So, either I have to 
work for longer hours, but that also has a limit to it. So clearly that's not a sustainable strategy. Or I have to find how I become more productive in those hours. That helps to some extent to be read faster, be more efficient in your work, but that also has its limits. What doesn't have limits is the ability to scale by hiring the right people who can take certain tasks away from you and get do them as well, if not better than how you do it, which is building the right team and which is hiring the right, say, presidents and general managers that we have in, in these companies and also having understanding investors. Uh, so we have some investors that are shared investors and things so that they understand that this is how I do it. And I want to make sure that I ask myself and have an honest conversation and honest oversight of myself, because you can oftentimes end up in a situation that if there's nobody to tell you, uh, then how do you kind of get any check and balance on this? And when it's not working, how do you get to know? So you have to be honest with yourself about that. But so far, so good. Uh, uh, it, it does get a little bit challenging as these companies grow, their needs increase. And what I find is that at the appropriate time, I will replace myself. Uh, and that appropriate time typically happens pre-commercialization when I bring in a sales and marketing oriented commercial leader as the CEO. And I will transition myself to a chairman kind of a role. I still will be involved, but that day-to-day -day functioning, the commercialization, that will need a lot more effort and to bring the right team members in at that point in time so that but when these are technology-oriented projects, given that I am a technologist by background, my oversight is important in that. So understanding what you do well and what you don't do so well, which is not as exciting and interesting to you, but it is for other people and there are better people for the job, bring them in at the right time. So I guess now for, for everything that you've done, you know, looking back and, and looking ahead, you know, especially with this technology that you did, you know, as part of Incept and how you've been licensing that and rolling different companies, you know, we're thinking about impact. You know, let's say if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, Amar, where the vision, you know, of everything that you had hoped for, you know, is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, what that world looks like, meaning today we're working in, for example, Rijoni. Uh, we have, uh, we're developing therapies to be able to treat uh, problems inside the uterus, whether these are problems of scar formation, whether these problems are excessive bleeding, or whether these are for sterilization, or whether these are so variety of types of things. So these are some of the biggest problems that women face, fertility, excessive bleeding, and needing contraception. So if I can kind of create products that have met these types of needs and are, you know, treating millions of uh, women, worldwide. Uh, and we're doing the same type of a thing in general surgery. We're doing it in neurosurgery. We're doing it in cardiology. We're doing it in radiology and in a variety of different disciplines. Uh, I would uh, say that, you know what, it's been a successful life. I love that. So now we're talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. Let's say I put you into a time machine, Amar, and I bring you back to that moment where you were 27 years old. 27 years old, you were doing the roadshow with Focal. You're now starting to think about maybe doing something of your own. So let's say you're able to sit down with that younger self and you're able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? 
So I think the key thing, uh, uh, a piece of advice is that if you believe strongly enough and also if you feel that it will make you more content and happy, even if you have to work harder, you should do it in terms of taking the risk of going out and doing something on your own. Because people are oftentimes caught in that, uh, immobilized by fear of what might happen, what could go wrong. Lots of things can go wrong, but if you have confidence in yourself, you're 27 years old, you can probably get a job somewhere else. You, you now have a green card, you now have a, a, a authorization to work, you will get a job somewhere else. But if you wanted to do something big and you wanted to do something by yourself, and you don't want to keep working for somebody else. When is the time? So you're young, go ahead and take that risk. Of course, you need to have good. The other corollary to that is that the core has to be solid. You know, just like exercise, the core has to be solid. Technology core has to be good because you can only dress it up so much with marketing and, and uh, manufacturing and all of those things. But if the core technology is not that good, then I think you have to wait. So don't just jump on the first application, but make sure that the core that you're working on is solid and you have a desire to kind of prove yourself right. And when those two things are there, then you are unstoppable. I love that. So for the people that are listening, Amara, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Well, my email is uh, my first name at my last name dot org. So it's Amar A M A R at Sahani S A W H N E Y dot org. Hey, well, easy enough. Well, Amar, thank you so much for being on the show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. My pleasure, Alejandro. Thank you for doing this. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself. Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.